This is the National Medicine Symposium from the Canberra National Convention Centre. My name is Natalie Ruffle. I'm from NPS Medicine Wise. I'm one of the clinical leads there. Uh, and it's my pleasure today to chair our session, our concurrent session. Uh, we have a fantastic lineup of speakers, as you can see. Uh, and you'll, you'll soon realise that there's a little bit of a sub-theme to this concurrent session, uh, more than just improving medicine use. But um, our speakers do have either you know, clinical research, teaching or, or policy roles um, that are aimed at influencing and improving the use of medication uh, medications, particularly in older patients, uh, we're touching on polypharmacy, deprescribing, and medication review uh, in uh, the clinical sector. So, um, I'll, I'll, without further ado, I'll get started. Uh, each presenter will go on uh, for about nine minutes. We'll have about a minute worth of uh, question time, and I'll be walking around, or someone from NPS will be walking around with a roving mic, mic to help you with that. So without further ado, um, I'll present to you um, uh, Ian Scott, who's from Princess Alexandra Hospital. Right, eight minutes. Um, thank you. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. I'm presenting the results of a trial that we've conducted in primary care recently, dealing with deep prescribing. So this is a project that was conducted in primary care. I'm presenting on, the, on behalf of Christian Anderson. She's our PhD student who actually had, did uh, most of the work, but unfortunately she has a three-month-old baby and couldn't be here today. So I'm filling in for her. Um, we know the context. Uh, we have an urgent need to reduce iatrogenic harm from polypharmacy, particularly in older patients. About one in five of regularly prescribed medications in older patients are unnecessary or potentially inappropriate. Deprescribing is the process, systematic process, of clinician-supervised identification, withdrawal or dose reduction of medicines where the harms outs, uh, exceed the benefits. And I think our feeling was that GPs are well-placed uh, to initiate this type of process uh, given their long-standing relationships with, with, with these patients. We were aware that a systematic review um, found that there was no effect or potentially beneficial effect of deprescribing on mortality. So it almost reached statistical significance, but not quite. Uh, the conclusion was that we need perhaps a more effective, customised intervention to reduce inappropriate polypharmacy at a primary care level. So the aim of this study was to develop and test the feasibility, oh, that sounds better, and effectiveness of a multifaceted GP-led intervention to minimise potentially inappropriate polypharmacy. But also addressing in that study design barriers and enablers to deprescribing and routine care that we'd also surmised from a systematic review that we did back in 2014 and further research with focus groups in 2017. This was an exploratory trial. It's a non-randomised controlled pre-post. The intervention was a five-hour face-to-face interactive deprescribing workshop for self-selected general practitioners who wanted to be part of the program using a CEASE protocol based on planning our best medical history in terms of medications, reconciling the treatment and diagnosis list, estimating the patient risk of adverse drug events, reviewing the utility of each medication, then prioritising targets for deprescribing and formulating an agreed withdrawal plan and then implementing and monitoring that plan. And it's based on an article that the Australian Deprescribing Network published in 2015. In this, we also had a co-design EMR interactive decision tool that was at the point of care and prompted clinicians, prompted GPs to consider deprescribing and the steps involved. The GPs identified patients with whom they had ongoing therapeutic relationship, 65 years or older, and were taking eight or more regular medications, chronic medications as per the GP record. They were then asked, after they were involved in doing the workshop, to then uh, have an extended appointment for those patients 
with the explicit aim of looking at their medicines and de-prescribing. And that's where they used the decision support template that we had co-designed with those GPs. In particular, two GPs had particular programming interests. And then ongoing follow-up appointments and referral to specialists and other healthcare professionals at the GP discretion. And there was also an option for GPs to refer patients for a home medications review to clinical pharmacists who also were part of the workshop. That's the template that uh, was used by the GPs in their de-prescribing consultations. So that gives you just a snapshot. This would come up on their, uh, on their uh, computer as integrated with their medical director or whatever software they were using, okay, when they, and went through uh, the, these steps in relation to each medication that the patient was taking. And obviously, as you can see, this was an extended appointment, so it wasn't just a six-minute consult. It was a 20, 25-minute consult or longer at the, at the discretion. And uh, that's been published as well in 2016. So the patient flow, we have an intervention group and the usual care group. So we had about 120 versus 101 patients who were consented to contact. So we had intervention GP practices and control GP practices. Uh, obviously then there was some withdrawal and we ended up with 78 patients in the intervention group and 67 patients in the usual care group. That was the study flow, so we had to identify the practices in the first instance, and that took probably one of the biggest steps, is to find GP practices that were prepared to participate in this sort of research. It's, this is not easy to do. Um, and then for practice managers and others to identify eligible patients who could be then uh, um, eligible for a de-prescribing appointment. So we had three sites, 10 GPs, 78 patients in dimension arm, and two sites, 10 GPs, and 67 patients in the usual care arm. So we had started at uh, time zero with baseline practice GP, clinical pharmacist and patient data, and then compliance checks about two months and then follow-up at four to six months. So the average follow-up was 18 weeks okay, for this project. The primary outcome measure was the number of agreed regular medications deprescribed. That is either ceased or dose reduced per patient. This was a pragmatic design. One of the things we found is that in both GP practices, going back to the records, the first thing that people noticed is that, okay, we need to reconcile the records. Okay, so we actually found that, in fact, what was the source of truth? Was it the patient? Was it the GP record? So we decided that we would use the agreed list, the things that the GP and the patient both agreed on. That caused us great angst in the beginning, I can tell you. So baseline doctor characteristics. So just to give you um, a quick um, snapshot, there were no uh, differences between intervention and usual care GPs in terms of age, sex, the mean number of years registered, their qualification, their full-time status, and the number of patients that they saw. In terms of patient characteristics, these two were similar. In terms of age, sex, whether they resided alone, whether they were responsible for their own medications or whether they devolved it to others, and what their primary language was at home. They also were very similar in terms of baseline characteristics, in terms of comorbidities and the number of comorbidities that they had. So I'm going through this fairly quickly, but it's all the same. So what were the results? Um, well, of 649 medications across the intervention group, 77 were deprescribed, about 12%, versus about 5% in the usual care group. The number of medicines per patient is minus 0.55, so it kind of you know, it looks a bit weird, but that's the mean difference per patient over an 18-month period. And of that 0.362 were actual medications ceased, not just dose reduced. Intervention patients were twice as likely to have at least one regular medicine ceased or dose reduced. And we also, in consonant with other literature, for every additional medicine prescribed at baseline, the likelihood of one or more medicines being de-prescribed increased by 16%. So the more they were on, the more likely we could de-prescribe at least one drug. 
That gives you an idea of the medicines most commonly deprescribed. So vitamin D, folic acid, um, uh, calcium, magnesium, these are the various supplements that were regularly prescribed. And that's perhaps, again, not unsurprising. I guess that's the kind of the easy fruit. But PPI, H2 antagonists, statins, oral hypoglycemics, and diuretics were also featured prominently. The secondary outcomes, we didn't see any difference between groups in the change in quality of life. Uh, they both went down by about 1.8 versus 1.3 on a 0 to 100 scale, so we didn't see any real change in quality of life. Unplanned self-reported hospitalizations almost reached statistical significance in the intervention group. GP appointments were the same in both. Adverse events were nil. We had no problems with deprescribing. And the number of new medicines commenced was about 0.3 per person, or doses of existing drugs increased was about 0.1. So we, while we deprescribed, uh, there were some medications that were actually added during the period. Um, uh, clinical pharmacists mediated HMRs, more in the intervention group, 13% versus 4.6%, but we found no effect on that on deprescribing. Uh, in the intervention group, we used the PADD questionnaire from Emily Reeves, and we found that at the end, the patients had greater certainty and agreement that the revised medication regimen was necessary or appropriate, right, versus what they said at baseline. So in summary, I think the strengths of the study is that we had a, a use of agreed lists, which I think is important. Uh, the data collection process was very robust, and we thank the GP practices and practice managers for assisting. The decision support tool was co-designed, so GPs were used it and were happy with it, and they continued using it. And we used the PID questionnaire to investigate the relationship between patient attitudes and deprescribing outcome. There are some limitations. Clearly, we had selection bias in terms of the GPs who participated, and also there was some selection bias too in that GPs were asked to take consecutive patients, but they did admit in some cases they selected patients as to who they would put on the deprescribing appointment uh, list. We had a convenience sample, as, and this was, had to be just by pure pragmatics, and we didn't randomise practices and we haven't adjusted for clustering. But I think in conclusion, we have a feasible intervention with a modest effect. Clearly, we'd like to do a larger, longer trial, preferably a cluster RCT, to evaluate long-term safety and efficacy. And also in that, perhaps also define and include more clinically important outcomes that are relevant to deprescribing. Thank you very much, and there's our acknowledgements. Thank you, Ian, for a fantastic presentation, and you were eight minutes on the dot. <laughs> um, do we have any questions open the floor for any questions? I might kick off with one. Um, I, I noticed that you uh, provided some support for the GPs. They co-designed the intervention, really. Um, what about for patients and at the point mm -hmm. where you know, medicines were being de-prescribed? Yep. Did they have any support? Uh, uh, no, we have to admit that uh, we felt that in the first instance that the GP was really the primary target. We recognise that patient involvement and participation is important too, uh, but we felt in this first exploratory trial we needed to make sure we had the GPs on board because they really were the linchpin. Um, so uh, having said that though, um, the uh, feedback and qualitative uh, comments with GPs, clinical pharmacists and a small group of patients felt the patients kind of felt better having the GP there with the point of care tool in front of them which they indicated that they were taking a direct interest in medication review, which for many patients was the first time that they actually had undergone a medication review. That's great. So maybe in the future a health-mediated, you know, patient decision tool. Yes. The study was mentioned that the HMRs didn't have any effects on the deprescribing. Does it mean that the pharmacist didn't recommend any medications to be deprescribed, or what does it mean? 
It, well, it meant that I think the, G, the, the uh, clinical pharmacists were concordant with what the GP was wanting to do anyway. So in other words, I don't think we felt that the clinical pharmacists were putting or offering additional recommendations over and above what the GP had done. I think that uh, the, GP, the referrals that were done, I think, was to assist in adherence, uh, was to assist just to make sure that we have a reconciled list of medications, do patients feel fully informed about what's going on. But in terms of offering the GP a new recommendation as to a new drug to deprescribe, we didn't really see that come through. So the GP made the decisions for deprescribing, yes. and then the pharmacist did the HMR? That's right. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to introduce next to you uh, Professor Sarah Hilmer, who's from uh, Royal North Shore Hospital in the University of Sydney. And I'd just like to say that uh, my talk fits beautifully after Ian's, because um, I guess in, within this session we have yeah, two talks back-to-back -back that I'll give, which are on deprescribing in hospital, then a third talk that one of my research pharmacists will give on some implementation work on deprescribing in hospital, and then at the end we have a cluster randomised trial in the community, which uh, Muna will talk about, but targeting... Um, residential, sorry, it's targeting home medicines review pharmacists rather than GPs. So between us, we've covered all bases. So this project was called Minimising the Functional Burden of Medications in Older Inpatients, Implementation of the Drug Burden Index. And in the top corner there, you can see me standing next to Rayanne Nahas, who is the clinical hospital pharmacist who has seconded to me to do this project and the next one, and um, really did a, a fabulous job as the intervention. This project was funded by New South Wales Health um, ACI, which is the Agency for Clinical Innovation. And the other investigators are Daniel Anidic, Emily Reeve, Lisa Kalajian, and Jenny Crane. So this project was about implementing the Drug Burden Index into hospital care. Now, Drug Burden Index is something that I first developed over 10 years ago now when I was doing my postdoc in the US with Dr. Daryl Abernathy, who is a father of geriatric pharmacology. And, um, what we thought was that, uh, yes, polypharmacy is common, but uh, when you see a whole lot of drugs, you don't really know which ones to stop. Sometimes it's really easy to pick up side effects. It's pretty obvious if someone's an anticoagulant and they're bleeding, it's a side effect. But some side effects are a lot more subtle, and they just subtly impair your physical function and your cognitive function. And those are the drugs that have sedative and anticholinergic effects. And all those side effects add up in the person. And uh, we decided that we would find a way to measure that. So we called it the Drug Burden Index. It's a pharmacological measure of an older person's total exposure to medicines with anticholinergic and sedative effects that impair physical and cognitive function. We calculate a person's exposure to each drug with anticholinergic and sedative effects using this formula, which uh, is really the dose-response formula, where we look at the person's total daily dose, to to total daily dose token taken <laughs> over the total daily dose taken plus this delta, which we use the minimum registered dose for, but is actually an estimate of the DR50, the dose required to get 50% of the maximal effect. And the main drug classes that um, people are exposed to that have anticholinergic and sedative effects are antipsychotics, benzodiazepines and Z drugs, opioids, gabapentin and pregabalin, antidepressants, antimuscarinics, particularly those used for urging continence, and antihistamines. So we started by evaluating drug burden index in a number of populations internationally using mainly pharmacoepidemiology methods. And a lot of this work was done by Daniel and Nick, and uh, as well as by a number of groups independently internationally. And we've now evaluated drug burden index in older people from the community, retirement villages, nursing homes, and hospitals internationally. And invariably, the higher your drug burden index, the more likely you are to have impaired physical function, which is what we developed it for, as well as more likely you are to fall over, be frail and become frail, 
wind up in hospital, wind up seeing a GP, wind up in a nursing home and to die. And those are just some of the countries that it's been evaluated in. And this is just a way of describing drug burden index in a really cool comic, which I did not make myself. <laughs> so we decided that uh, we were ready to actually put this into practice. And this is an inpatient drug burden index implementation study. The hypothesis is that there's a missed opportunity to identify and reduce the functional burden of medications in older inpatients. And this can be addressed by using the drug burden index as a clinical risk assessment tool. Our aim was to minimise the functional burden of medications in older inpatients. So we did a randomised controlled trial, which we registered. We got human research ethics approval from the Royal North Shore Hospital Ethics Committee. And um, we included patients who were aged over 70, admitted under a range of different disciplines within the Division of Medicine at Royal North Shore, and um, had a drug burden index of more than zero on admission. Their length of stay was predicted to be more than 48 hours. We thought it would take us a while to do a review. And they had to be likely to survive the admission. And this is a diagram of what we actually did. People came into hospital, we got their consent, we randomised them into either the intervention or the control usual care group. Um, in the intervention group, we calculated their drug burden index, generated a report for the team, which I'll show you in a moment, which we talked about with the registrar or the consultant. We wanted to talk to someone who actually had the power to make a decision, not an intern, and um, ag agreed on the medication strategy. And then at the time of discharge, we actually gave another report to the patient to accompany the discharge summary, which would go to their GP explaining about the patient's drug burden index and what we'd done in hospital and what we'd like them to follow up. And along the way, we looked at a range of different um, sociodemographic comorbidity and sort of geriatric measures, as well as adverse drug events and adverse drug withdrawal events. We also followed people up at three and six months by phone to see what happened to them after they left hospital. This is a copy of the drug burden index report at baseline. And this was actually developed by Lisa Kalagian, another research pharmacist during her PhD. And um, she initially validated it in a pilot study in home medicines review with accredited pharmacists. Um, and as I said, we are using a souped up version of this to do a cluster RCT in a home medicines review at the moment, which Moon will talk about. And this is our study in hospital. So uh, the report tells people what drug burden index is, that's associated with bad outcomes in old people, gives a list of the person's drugs, and how they might contribute to the drug burden index score, have a space for the pharmacist recommendations and a space for the medical officer comments to make sure that everyone agrees, and calculates the person's total drug burden index and stratifies people as low, moderate, or high risk. So who did we manage to recruit? Well, I've got to say, like all clinical trials, we ran out of money before we got the uh, full cohort. I think this happens with investigator-initiated trials. We wanted 400 people to be powered to look at clinical outcomes, and we wound up with 253 but we were powered to look at prescribing outcomes. So we had 122 in the intervention group and 131 in the control group. They had a median age of 85, um, almost three quarters of them were women, and um, most of them were um, Caucasian, reflecting the demographic that Royal North Shore serves. Um, educate, they were pretty well educated, and about 45% of them came from home independently, and about um, sort of 10 to 20% came from aged care facilities. They had a reasonable burden of uh, comorbidity, and um, <coughs> about 65% yeah, of them were frail. And this is what we did to drug burden index. And I think this is really quite powerful to see in colour. First, Rayan did a retrospective audit, just looking at what usual care was before we started. And as you can see, the yellow group, who had no change in DBI, we generally did nothing, about three quarters of people 
in about 20% of people would decrease DBI and sometimes would increase it. Then we did a patient level randomized trial and you can see the control group looks exactly the same as the retrospective audit. There was no problem with contamination in the study even though we were only using, using the same practitioners. And uh, the intervention group on the other hand, the yellow has become green. Um, the people who we didn't change, we actually were able to decrease drug burden index in. We still didn't change it in about a quarter of people, and there were still some people whose drug burden index did increase through the admission, but we made a big impact on um, drug burden index. What about clinical outcomes? Well, as I said, we unfortunately weren't really powered to look at clinical outcomes. We did happen to see less new adverse drug events in hospital in the intervention group than the control, and that was significant. But we didn't see a significant difference in adverse drug withdrawal events, which is quite a relief, in uh, falls, delirium, pressure areas, length of stay, or discharge destination, whether someone went to a new nursing home. What happened six months later? Well, the great news is that this effect actually seemed to have been sustained. I think the fact that we sent the letter to the GP explicitly explaining what we were doing and why meant that uh, DBI was decreased since discharge further in 30% uh, in the intervention group, and interestingly, in about 19% of the control group, but uh, the intervention group had more of an effect, and we didn't see any difference, significant difference in any of the other clinical outcomes, which I think realistically are probably driven more by the acute admission than by our medication changes in that short time frame. How feasible is this? How long did it take, Rayan? Well, um, this shows that uh, she spent about two minutes on admission and about 46 seconds on discharge entering drugs into the software. Um, she spent about six minutes on admission and about four minutes on discharge making her comments on the drug burden index report and about three minutes initially making her recommendations and then about another one and a half minutes on discharge um, talking to the team and the GP. So it wasn't hugely onerous in terms of time. So in conclusion, in older hospitalised patients, drug burden index was successfully used to firstly identify patients at risk of functional impairment from medication and secondly to increase de-prescribing of anticholinergic and sedative medicines during and sustained after admission. The only significant clinical impact we observed was reduced adverse drug events during admission in the intervention group and this study will inform translation into usual care which Mai will talk about when I finished. Thank you very much. Would you like questions now in between your next one? Yeah, I think so. Yeah? Yep. Okay. Does anyone have any questions? Thank you very much. Uh, I would like to know if uh, the absence of uh, significant results on uh, clinical outcomes as hospitalization may be explained by the lack of power of your trial or because otherwise people may remain, remain unconvinced of the utility to do this work if you cannot demonstrate that. Yeah, look, I agree. I would have liked to have had a trial that was powered for clinical outcomes and we needed 400 people and we got 250. So we were underpowered. Um, it's reassuring that we didn't cause bad outcomes, particularly the things that you can measure like adverse drug events and adverse drug withdrawal events. I think the tricky thing with doing, looking at those outcomes too, the global health outcomes like frailty and falls and readmission and death in a post-discharge population is that so much of that is driven by the acute illness they've just been to hospital for. And I think in terms of designing a trial with a feasible sample size to be able to see clinical outcomes, you're much better off in the community. So um, I think Muna's trial and Ian's trial in that sort of model will need a smaller sample size to see a clinical income outcome on some of those geriatric income outcomes, while the post-acute setting is really very much driven 
by the acute illness. I'm, I'm wondering for some of the drugs have withdrawal effects that um, how did you deal with withdrawal? Was it, did you have a protocol for gradual withdrawal for, for drugs with like the antidepressants and the, the uh, benzos and such? We did. So um, Rayanne accessed all the available protocols that she could find. So she certainly used the Canadian deprescribing network protocols. There were some resources available from NPS Medicines Wise, some of which they developed for Winita's Reduce program. Um, there were some guidelines in AMH, and there were the Tasmanian Primary Healthcare Network guidelines, and she used those and um, spoke with the teams and certainly made gradual withdrawal plans. And that's one of the reasons why I think the DBI continued to reduce after we went home, because a lot of the time when people went home, they had only halved their dose, which would reduce their DBI, but it could still come down further if they followed that tapering regimen that we'd recommended. Uh, thanks, Sarah. That's a great talk. Thank you. I'm interested in... Um, the way you've stratified the disease or drug burden index based on the score, low, moderate, or high risk, whether that's also affected by the age. Because looking at the study, you've only the inclusion criteria was patients above 70. And I'm wondering whether um, you've done any work on other patient groups and if the age has any f impact on the clinical outcomes. Yeah, look, as I said, we've done work on across wide groups with all Within older people, all different ages and degrees of frailty, we've done community-dwelling people, people in nursing homes, people in hospitals. Um, DBI is really a continuous variable. The higher your drug burden index, the worse your functional outcome. And if you look at continuous variables, there's a nice relationship. Those cutoffs are clinical cutoffs that we put in because they have some sort of grounding in and meaning, I guess, to a clinician. If you're exposed to sort of the minimum efficacious dose of one anticholinergic or sedative drug, you get a DBI of 0.5. So two drugs is one. Once you're on yeah, sort of two high-risk drugs, that means something to a clinician. They might do something considered high risk. But the relationship is actually linear, both in terms of the exposure and um, the functional impairment. Yeah, great, great study. Thanks. I'm wondering um, in your other work or other people who use the drug burden index, what's the level of reduction in the index that's needed to achieve a clinically significant outcome. Um, and in your study, this study, what proportion of your patients in the inter intervention group achieved that level of reduction? Yeah, look, good, good question. The, yeah, no one has actually done the interventional studies. And so all the signals we're getting in terms of clinically significant effect are based on the epidemiological associations of increasing risk from increasing exposure. And it seems to be about a level of 0.5 Gives, which is exposure to one drug with anticholinergic or sedative effects at minimum dose, is sort of is what gives you a clinically significant difference in your functional outcomes if you look at the EPI studies. But um, it's only recently been started to be used in interventional studies. We've done this one. There are some other pilot studies. No one's done one that's big enough to look at clinical impact yet. Thank you for your questions. Sarah, if you want to move on now to your intervention in the hospital setting. Thank you. So on this giddy with success from that one, um, <laughs> I decided I better, I better, and also I guess uh, heavily influenced by Ian and the team at Aiden, I thought that uh, there was a big contention in the field about deprescribing, about whether it was the number of drugs or the type of drugs that was really driving adverse effects and what we should really be targeting with um, deprescribing interventions. So I decided that we should do a study that would target older patients with hyperpolypharmacy, which is people on 10 or more drugs. So we thought we'd target drug number. And again, I managed to uh, lure Rayanne away from her clinical pharmacy duties, thank you, Jenny, and um, got her to be the intervention again. So the quality of our intervention was just as good and, in fact, a little bit more experienced. 
This time we also had an honours student, Patrick Sutton, who helped us with some of the data entry and analysis. And um, our AIs included Daniel Anidic, Emily Reeve, a geriatrician at my hospital, James Hardy, our Head of Division of Medicine, Terry Finnegan, Jenny, our Director of Pharmacy, um, Philip Hoyle, our Director of Medical Services, and Fiona Robinson, a GP. And this was funded through um, a local institutional grant. So the background to this, this is that increasing numbers of medicines is strongly associated with inappropriate prescribing and with adverse drug events, as Ian just showed us. And an acute hospital stay is an opportunity to review all of a patient's medicines. So we decided to investigate the impact of implementing a multidisciplinary, multiple medicines management service, we called 4MS, on prescribing for older patients admitted with hyperpolypharmacy. And again, we registered the trial. This time we decided we would do a pre-post study and um, it really was just a pilot study to see how it would work out. We did um, cycles of usual care, where we observed award, patients on a ward for two to four weeks, followed by the 4MS intervention period of about two to four weeks on the same ward, going sequentially through a range of different medical wards and the orthopaedics ward, where they had an orthogeriatric service. Um, we decided to target wards where there was, in fact, a physician in charge who could make a decision about medicines we didn't extend into the other surgical services. This time we decided to have people aged 65 or higher taking 10 or more medicines on admission, as I said, admitted under Division of Medicine or Orthopaedics, expected to stay in hospital more than 48 hours, likely to survive the admission, and we could get informed consent from them or a surrogate. And um, this one proved really hard to recruit to, which is interesting. We, had, we screened 1,052 patients um, from those, that range of services. We found that only 269 of those had... Uh, hyperpolypharmacy, which is actually exactly the same as people have reported on a sort of general medicine service across Australia from the intra data. Ruth Cabot has some similar data. Um, of those, about half were actually eligible for the study um, because they stayed in hospital long enough and uh, were not put into ICU. And um, of those, we managed to recruit about 60%. And what you'll see here is that 61 were in the usual care observation group and only 22 in the intervention and for that, I blame the flu epidemic, which uh, pretty much meant that our, one of our major intervention periods, in fact, several of our major intervention periods, the study wards were under quarantine and we couldn't get in. So uh, what did we do for this fabulous inter disciplinary intervention? Well, firstly, Rayanne screened the patients and obtained their consent. Then she got all the information she needed to obtain the medication history from a range of sources plus the GP and she formulated a medication plan. And um, as I said, she used a number of resources that I alluded to before, particularly the um, Tasmanian PHN deprescribing guidelines and the Canadian deprescribing guidelines. Um, then she spoke with the specialist and the GP and agreed on a medication optimization plan, um, which she put into the medication management plan, the MMP, which is part of the usual New South Wales Health Medical Record. Um, or into the uh, electronic progress note. So we're really trying to integrate this into usual care rather than handing them a really pretty DBI report. And um, she communicated the medication plan to the treating team, the GP, and the patient or carer. And what did this population look like? Well, they were younger than the last ones. Um, they were sort of a median of 78 years old. Um, only about half of them were female. Again, most of them were Caucasian, and most of them were quite well-educated and um, two-thirds of them were independent at home and very few in residential aged care facilities. At a similar level of comorbidity to the last group, about 40% of them had fallen in the past year and just under half of them were frail. 
And this is a little bit disappointing, but uh, let's see what we did. So this is their admit medications on admission. You can see total number of medications, uh, median of 16 in the control group, 15.5 in the intervention group, with a range that goes up to 28. Um, people taking a median of two supplements. Um, if you think about just the regular NPRN meds, there are a median of 13. And chronic prescription medicines, a median of 11. And um, on discharge, what you'll notice is these numbers are almost exactly the same, but very slightly higher. <laughs> and uh, there is absolutely no difference between the control group or the intervention group. And this just shows again uh, sort of what happened during admission. Um, about a third of people had a medication ceased, same in the control group and the intervention group. The only significant finding was that, in fact, more people in the intervention group had the drug started. Um, and on average, yeah, you can see 70 or 90% of people had a drug started. Um, doses decreased very slightly more in the intervention group, but it wasn't significant. And dose was increased about a third of people in both groups. And we didn't do anything to prescribing, and uh, there was no impact on clinical outcomes. Um, interestingly, the uh, intervention group actually happened to have more falls. But I can't really blame them on deprescribing since we didn't deprescribe. And so this is really interesting. We decided to look in more detail at you know, what exactly RAM was doing for those uh, six months of active intervention and what actually happened to the intervention group. So these 22 patients had 331, patient, 331 medicines. Hardly any of these would actually count towards drug burden index. So it was, interestingly, a group that generally actually would not have even been recruited into the last study. Um, she made 24 recommendations for the 331 medicines, so really couldn't change, even recommend changing very much. Um, <coughs> she could recommend changing something in most patients, about two-thirds of patients, um, but in a third she actually didn't even have any recommendations to make. Um, the median number of recommendations per patient was one, and when she did recommend ceasing a drug, that happened in uh, the case of 12 drugs, and actually only two were taken up and one person decreased their dose in addition to that, and um, when she recommended dose decrease, she did that 12 times, and uh, only three of those recommendations were taken up. So really much less impact than she had with the DBI report and in the DBI population. We went to look more in more detail at what happened sort of by drug class. And um, here you can see sort of the top drugs that people are taking, not surprisingly, are statins, proton pump inhibitors, and um, aspirin, and other antiplatelets. And, uh, you can see here in light blue, no recommendations made, and in dark blue, recommendations are made. And what you can see is those high hitters where you thought you really could do something, generally speaking, in this population with hyperpolypharmacy who are frequent flyers in a hospital, um, the drugs were actually appropriate. Um, the statins, 15 out of 18, were for secondary prevention, and the proton pump inhibitors, 13 out of 15, <coughs> appeared appropriate running through the Canadian algorithm. Aspirin, again, 14 out of 15 were for secondary prevention. So there wasn't a lot of room to move with recommendations. And you'll see that if you go back and look at, say, the drugs that she was able to move on in the DBI study, things like drugs for urinary incontinence, there she made a lot of recommendations, um, antidepressants and things she could actually, benzodiazepines, there she was making recommendations. But uh, the drugs that most of these people were using with the hyperpolypharmacy actually appeared to be appropriate for them. And this intervention was also a lot more time-consuming. You can see that um, it took about half an hour for each patient to do this intervention. By the time she uh, gathered all the information and wrote the initial report, um, wrote it up in the medication management plan, 
and um, talk to the GP. On the bright side, the GPs really liked the reports when they got them. Um, eight GPs gave us filled out our feedback forms, and 63% uh, said that they thought the report was very useful, 88% used the information for decision-making, 100% found it easy to read and understand, and 88% took up the recommendations because they thought they were clinically appropriate, patient and care had agreed, information provi provided was sufficient, and the specialist and prescriber had agreed. And the report was basically a table that looked a bit like this. It had the medicine and its indication, um, <coughs> the reasons for the change, what the change was, the action in hospital, what we'd like the GP to do, and then they can say what they did and why. So the 4MS intervention did not change deprescribing all clinical outcomes in hospital for older people admitted with hyperpolypharmacy. And I guess why would that be? I think it's probably patient selection. I think hyperpolypharmacy and age are actually not a good screen for people who may benefit from medication review in hospital. It's very possible that once someone has more than 10 medicines, that's triggered someone else do a medication review before they came, and often those medicines actually may be quite reasonable. Um, there's also the feasibility of doing an intervention in the acute setting. Um, there's limited time to obtain information from patients, GPs, specialists, and communicate back to the team. And you can see this one took a lot more time than the previous one when she was just focusing on a couple of specific drug classes. Um, also, we integrated this intervention into usual care much more than the last one. We had a very nice separate report. And um, it might have gotten lost as people prioritise managing the cause of the acute admission. So in conclusion, there was no difference in the prevalence of cessation or dose reduction of admission medications between usual care and the 4MS intervention groups. And based on the findings of this pilot study and the previous study, our translational implementation project that Maya's going to talk about in a minute focuses on specific classes and doses of drugs identified with drug burden <coughs> index rather than number of drugs. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing your interesting pieces of work. Um, and I will open the floor up for a quick question. In the meantime, while people are thinking of questions, my, uh, uh, my comment or question is, uh, did you follow up three to six months with the GPs like you did in the first? We did, and uh, we are still just getting the last few forms trickling back, and I'll present those sometime soon. Just a very quick question. How, is there any, was there any evidence of the number of patients who had had regular medication reviews either at home or in the residential by a consultant pharmacist? Yeah, look, a lot of patients actually declined coming into the study because they said, I've just had a medication review. So that was in the, uh, in the study flow diagram, which I rushed you through a little bit. But yes, I think amongst these people, a lot of them had had previous medication reviews. And I think that once you see 10 or more medicines, that is actually a trigger for a medication review. And that could be one of the reasons why these people actually have more appropriate prescribing. It's just a, a, a question slash comment. I do um, home medication reviews. Don't be disheartened. Most of those people are not, not in the hospitals. They're out, they're, they're out in the community, so you're not wasting your time. They're, they're out there. They're just probably not in your hospital. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, and one of the things I've always uh, sort of in this whole deprescribing thing you might like to comment on is that there's all, a lot of thought and, and um, I wonder whether deprescribing is overthought because it seems to me that the prescribing is done relatively... Um, what's the word, easily, but suddenly it's a big deal to take someone off a drug. <laughs> yeah, look, I think that's a very, very good point, and I think we should be putting the same amount of thought into prescribing mm -hmm. as we do to deprescribing, and then uh, if we really thought about prescribing, we wouldn't have to have a whole field of thought around deprescribing. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you.
It's my pleasure now to introduce um, Mai Duong, who will be talking to us about innovations in computerised decision support in hospitals to reduce inappropriate polypharmacy in older adults. Thanks. So thank you. I'm very excited to be presenting uh, Professor Sarah Helmer's work and translation um, and all Sarah Helmer's research team and all the researchers involved, <coughs> but bringing this uh, into the hospitals for clinicians to use uh, at the bedside with patients. So as you can see, I'm merely one of a cast of thousands uh, in translational research. Uh, and many of them are actually in this room and doing presentations throughout this conference, uh, as you can see highlighted in, in green. Um, we've got many outcomes, so please uh, feel free to drop by and ask any of our investigators about this. So Sarah received a translational research grant from New South Wales Health uh, to reduce inappropriate polypharmacy in hospitals. She also received the um, Medical Research Future Fund to produce resources to help consumers through this process. Uh, there are two parts to this project. The first is uh, building a fabulous database called Towards Optimizing Older Adults Medications, to home we call it, and it's a database of usual care being guided by Dr. Daniela Jidik, and Sarita Lowe is our research pharmacist who's been working on it. Please drop by if you'd like to know some of the teaser data that's come out of it. It's really interesting. Um, also, today I'll be focusing on the second part, which is the decision support. Uh, that we've and been developing uh, with our team. Uh, this is being uh, guided by our human factors team led by Associate Professor Melissa Bezari. Also Dr. Wu Yi Zhang in the back and Dr. Amy Wing has been part of helping develop these decision support. Today we'll be particularly focusing on the EMR part, the electronic medical records. However, there's an intervention bundle that I do want to kind of go through because it's very exciting. So what we'll be pre presenting is uh, to the hospitals with, as an intervention bundle. We'll uh, what we developed with uh, eHealth, New South Wales eHealth, and the Sydney Local Health District ICT teams uh, led by Dr. Angus Ritchie and Rosemary Burke uh, and uh, Patrick Hooper. So we've developed, taken that DBI calculator and brought it into the hospitals to identify high-risk patients of inappropriate polypharmacy. And that's reflected from the studies that Sarah has presented. Um, so when we say high-risk, that's a DBI greater than one. Uh, a custom clinical data display page uh, called an M page is also being developed to demonstrate the name, the, the, the dose, the name, the DBI score of each drug, and also the cumulative score uh, to help identify whether or not um, they need to be like uh, addressed and have a little bit of a med review and to have a look and readdress any issues. So, if they want to some more guidance, we've also uh, developed some guidelines or some guides. We call them guides to help with the deprescribing process if there are any uncertainties. And also, we've seen some of the resources that we refer to in the previous slide that Sarah showed. Uh, importantly, is like the information deprescribing needs to follow the patient journey. So we have also developed uh, communication with the GPs. Uh, we presented Choosing Wisely on Wednesday about that research, uh, about developing phrasing, which our uh, wonderful master student, Dr. Brendan Ng, who also geriatrician, will be testing and feeding back to clinicians and GPs uh, to include this in the intervention bundle uh, to go out with the patients. And of course, we have developed and our still developing consumer medicines information uh, to take with patients so that there's a conversation at the bedside and also continue with the GPs. Uh, Brendan is also working on working on the culture of deprescribing in our hospitals. Uh, we have to educate our clinicians and have a discussion with med students. So he, we've come up with this really great uh, video. It's 11 minutes. It's available on Hetty if anyone's got time to have a look. It's really fun. It's pretty cool. Um, and uh, 
Brendan is actually evaluating as part of his master's, so if you've got time, please check it out. And of course, last but not least, our fabulous team at New South Wales Tech, uh, Dr. Sasha Bennett and Judy Raymond are working to build quality use medicines indicators um, to address the inappropriate polypharmacy and reduce that risk. So we are in this presentation, we're trying to explore current processes of in-hospital medication review um, with GPs and consumers and determine how best to design this decision support to facilitate deprescribing. We uh, did this across six hospitals in two districts in Northern Sydney and Sydney uh, local health districts, and we did use a consultative, iterative approach. Uh, so we started from the ground up, using semi-structured interviews, focus groups, workflow, observations, contextual design, user testing, and again, surveys, always analyzing, referring to the literature, and regularly, regularly, consulting with many of our expert uh, steering committees, um, and we had an annual stakeholder meeting to feed feedback, um, discussions with our partners and many stakeholders. A snippet of the engagement that we've been involved in in the past few months and up to date, we've involved about 200 people, 90 doctors, 60 pharmacists, 20 nurses, a dozen GPs, a dozen consumers, allied health and students just to start. Uh, and this is ongoing uh, and really is an iterative evolving process. Uh, but the, I guess, uh, response has been really, really encouraging, and a lot of people are enthusiastic about this. That's why we had such a high response. So just before we wrap up, I'd like to show you how do we come up with a design from the bottom up, and how are we interpreting this? So I'd like to show you the results and how we come up with the design elements, just as a little teaser. So users dislike pop-up alerts. Uh, that was very clear. Our JMO said, the tricky thing with alerts, there's definitely the sense of alert fatigue where you're like, oh, I'm sick of it, so close. Nah, I'm not even following you out of spite. <laughs> so we're like, yeah, yeah, okay, no, no alerts. We're gonna have a user-directed tool so that you can use it on an as-needed basis and it doesn't inter interrupt your workflow, but can still be helpful. Uh, medication reviews are ideally done on admission. As we know, we're very busy, sometimes we don't get to do it. However, a consultant did say that when the patient first comes in, it's a really good opportunity to try and clarify what they were on, compliance or history of their medications. A large part of what we do for the first contact with the patient on the ward is trying to tell what the patient is taking, what they're on before, and whether that's appropriate and really focusing on the appropriateness. So we're making sure that they can see that and use this tool right when they come in. And users prioritize patients. Uh, the way, so a pharmacist said, the way I prioritize my workload is pretty much a standard way of doing it. You would print out the patient list, identify all your new admissions. Amongst your new admissions, prioritize based on order of importance, age, comorbidities, place of residence, and reasons for admission. So we decided to use, incorporate the DBI into the, to be visible in the patient list to help with this assessment. Um, users also wanted a little bit of help along the way. So a registrar, one of our decision makers, said it would be nice to have some simple statistics, like guidelines, as we could go, okay, well not only do I know how to safely deprescribe, but I can also talk to my patients and let them know a simple fact about this. And so that's why we're working hard to make sure these guides are available and accessible at the bedside and in EMR. And lastly, but not, not but just as importantly, this is probably the most important part, is communication needs to be going on with the patient and the GP at discharge. Um, 
a GP did say there's so much patient resistance, having it written down that they're coming off their tomes and that is the reason how they're going to do it, gives a patient and the doctor the confidence that that's the right thing to be doing. Um, and that's why Sophie Carter, our research pharmacist, also led by Professor Priza Zlani and uh, Professor Yessi Janssen, are working on these CMIs being developed. We have a new, few pharmacists also coming on board soon. And again, the discharge summary phrasing that uh, Brendan is working on. So our next step is to pilot this. Uh, in Concord Hospital and Royal North Shore Hospital in, uh, starting October. Uh, and so we're very excited about that. And once we have this pilot and evaluation, we will consult with New South Wales Health, local health districts, and again, our partners to discuss further implementation. Thank you very much. And it's our turn. Thank you, Mai, for that very interesting presentation. Um, opening the floor for any questions. We have some time for a couple of questions. I might kick off. Might. No, no, I'll kick off with one question while they're thinking. Um, um, it's really quite amazing all the different things you've thought of to incorporate into this intervention. Um, Sarah earlier showed us that at discharge you can be quite successful in de-prescribing. Uh, will there be anything to support uh, doctors, pharmacists uh, in EMR on discharge? Yeah, so I think there's um, a lot of work right now in the discharge summary arena. So for us to actually be part of that is a little bit hard for a pilot. However, Brendan is developing what we call a macro template that can be used and downloaded within the ward as a template. And that, I mean, we have uh, MMPs in pharmacy, for example, that we do use. And so we're going to start with that for the pilot to see how well received that is by the clinicians as a starting point. And then if that's successful, then we can roll it out on a larger scale. Thanks very much for that. Okay, next uh, next speaker, Nashwa Masnoon uh, from the University of South Australia and Royal Adelaide Hospital. She'll be talking to us about the development of a tool to assess polypharmacy, right on theme. Okay, thanks for coming in to listen to my talk. Um, I'll be talking about developing a tool to assess polypharmacy. So we've all heard of the term multimorbidity, which is defined as the presence of two or more chronic medical conditions. The 2014 to 2015 National Health Survey showed that one in four of all Australians and three in five of Australians aged 65 years and over had two or more chronic medical conditions or multimorbidity. As a result, we know that the use of multiple medicines, often referred to as polypharmacy, is common. Now, if you look at the definition of polypharmacy, you'll probably come across the use of five or more medicines being used um, to define the term. But we know that that definition doesn't help us distinguish between what's clinically appropriate versus inappropriate polypharmacy. If you look at the tools available to assess polypharmacy, there are lots of different tools out there, but many of those tools haven't been validated against patient-related outcomes, limiting their use in practice. So the aim of our project was to develop a tool to assess polypharmacy, which provides a scoring system to identify patients at risk of adverse events. So how did we plan to go about developing our tool? So the very first phase was doing a survey of the literature. So we did a systematic review of the definitions of polypharmacy. We also did a systematic review of the different tools available to assess polypharmacy and which of those tools have been associated with patient-related outcomes. Once we did that, we then went to the experts in the area, so we went to expert doctors and pharmacists and presented them with what we found from the literature and asked them, what do you think is most important when you assess and rationalise uh, medicines use in practice? Once we did that, we then combined our findings from the literature and our survey of experts and combined them um, to develop an initial criteria for our polypharmacy tool. 
The very last phase, which is where we're at currently, is externally validating our preliminary tool against patient-related outcome data. So what have we found so far? So in terms of our literature search, um, the systematic review of the definitions of polypharmacy, we found that polypharmacy definitions were quite variable. They range from the use of two or more all the way to 11 or more medicines. Most commonly, it was the use of five or more medicines. In terms of the tools available, um, there were quite a few tools out there. We shortlisted a total of 42 tools and criteria, and these included things such as the BS criteria, the drug burden index, the stop-start criteria, um, anticholinergic scales, and so on. But what we found was less than 50% of the tools that are available, so 31% of the tools that are available, have been validated against at least one patient outcome, and most commonly that was hospitalisation. Then came our um, survey of our experts in the area, and we asked them, what do you think is most important when you rationalise medicines use? So we had a total of 22 experts in our um, survey, and these are the things that our experts said are most important when rationalising polypharmacy. So not only did they mention the number of medicines, but they also mentioned inappropriate drug class duplication, clinically significant drug-drug interactions, and being on um, high-risk medicines such as opioids and benzodiazepines. So at this stage of our process, we surveyed the literature, we asked our experts, and we've, got, we've shortlisted the criteria that our tool would be based on. Before we could go any further, we actually needed to define each of these criteria, you know, what is inappropriate drug class duplication and so on. So in terms of the number of medicines, that was purely the numerical count of the medicine someone was on. In, in terms of inappropriate duplication of medication classes, we use the Australian Medicines Handbook as a guide. So for example, things such as being on a short-acting and a long-acting insulin, if you go by ATC codes, that's a drug class duplication, but that's actually clinically appropriate. Whereas um, you know, being on two benzodiazepines or something like that, that's what we defined as inappropriate um, duplication of medication classes. Um, clinically significant drug-drug interactions, we use the Australian Medicines Handbook for that. And the high-risk medicines um, use, we use the SA Health um, list of high-risk medicines to identify those. So that brings me to the validation um, phase of our study. So the data that we're using for validation is from the Multidisciplinary Ambulatory Consulting Service, often referred to as the MAX Clinic at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. And we've got 603 patients in our data set with a mean age of 79.3 years. As you can imagine, there are various ways of allocating weight and combining those four criteria we saw on the previous slide into a final polypharmacy tool or polypharmacy formula or score. So for example, I could have one point for each medicine someone is on for the number of medicines. I could have one point for each drug-drug duplication. That's inappropriate. One point for um, drug interactions and one point for each high-risk medicine. Similarly, I could do half a point. I could do two points. I could do three points. So what we're doing um, in the initial phase is actually allocating different points to each criteria and testing the impact of each individual criteria against outcome data. And the outcomes that we're looking at are all-cause hospitalisation as well as drug-related hospitalisations. Once we've done that, we'll be able to have a final formula reflecting relative weight of each of those criteria for our final tool. So in terms of the data so far, so in our data set, the average number of medicines our patients um, were on was 12.5. In terms of high-risk medicines, around 20% of our patients were on opioids and benzodiazepines. 
Um, around 40% of patients uh, had clinically significant drug-drug interactions, and 4% of our patients had inappropriate drug class duplication. So in conclusion, once our validation phase is complete, we'll be able to develop a final formula for our polypharmacy tool. And what we aim to do is actually provide a cutoff score beyond which you can identify patients you know that those patients are at risk of hospitalisation. Um, we hope that our final polypharmacy tool bet can be used in practice by clinicians and pharmacists and serve as an indicator for the quality use of medicines. Thank you. Thank you very much for that interesting presentation, Ashwa. Do we have any questions from the floor? ask you one. Um, you mentioned that 30% of the existing tools um, have some kind of outcome and usually it relates to hospitalisation. What will the advantage of this tool be over them? Um, so in our um, survey of the experts that we did, um, we asked them how often do you use um, some of these tools that are available and have been associated with outcomes. Um, and in addition to indicating the frequency of usage, they actually had a comment box to explain why they use tools or why they don't. And some of the comments were, these are great for research purposes, but just not practical enough um, you know, in terms of how busy everyday practices and things like that. So I think that's something we're very um, aware of. And in developing our tool, we will bear that, that in mind, that it combines all those things that people said are important, but also practical enough for use in um, everyday practice. I think in all this sort of talk about you know, practicality there, we also need, need to bear in mind, um, increasingly we're becoming digitised. So we should be using information in EMRs, in medical records, to gather the necessary variables and compute the scores instantaneously. So it, so it doesn't matter how, perhaps how many variables, if they're all important and they're all independently predictive, then we need to include them. So I think digitisation perhaps has, you know, has got some real potential there. Um, I might just in indicate that we recently, because at, RB, at our hospital PA, we're interested, because we're fully digitalised, how we can actually improve the system and decision support. So we did a review just recently, which is just going to be published, looking at EMR-enabled decision support in relation to polypharmacy. All right. So, I, And in that, we found some studies that I think have done quite a lot in actually taking a lot of the grunt out of it mm -hmm. and giving clinicians some very worthwhile recommendations that they just couldn't do otherwise. Yeah. So I think we need to sort of just look at the potential there. Absolutely. And um, we've had um, a lot of um, discussions, uh, Professor Shakib um, and our team and I, around um, digital health and incorporating it. I think probably in terms of timeline, in the first phase, we want to develop the tool and then um, take it forward. Um, you guys might be aware of EPAS rollout in South Australia, which is electronic um, documentation systems. So there have been lots of conversations around that, and we're aware that that would be the way to go once we've got the final tool. Yeah. Thank you very much, Nashua. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, next up, we have um, Gizat Molakasi. Sorry if I pronounced that wrong. Um, from the, uh, the oh, Gizat, you're from the University of South Australia, and you're going to be talking to us about the use of medicines associated with delirium prior to hospitalisation in older Australians. Okay, thank you. Uh, the topic of my talk is the use of medicines associated with delirium prior to hospitalization in older Australian patients. Uh, first, delirium, it is an acute mental confusion which usually occurs in elderly people. Uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, symptoms associated with delirium which may range from agitation, uh, sleepiness, uh, hallucinations, and it can be classified based on the psychomotor symptoms. 
uh, it has a number of adverse consequences to the patient and to the healthcare system, uh, including mortality and morbidity and increased hospitalization and post-discharge institutionalization. And managing delirium in the hospital is also expensive, so it has a, a financial burden to the healthcare system. The incidence and prevalence of delirium, it depends on the setting, and population prevalence may reach up to 10% in the very old age group. Uh, hospital prevalence uh, reached to 80% in inpatients admitted to intensive care unit, uh, depending on the severity of the, uh, the, their illness. And the risk factors for delirium can better be understood by classifying them into predisposing and precipitating factors. Precipita predisposing factors are factors which are less likely to be modified and include advanced age, uh, the permanent cognitive impairment like dementia, uh, vision or hearing impairments, and multiple comorbidities. Uh, the precipitating factors can be um, can sometimes easily be modified, and these are the immediate causes that induce delirium in an already predisposed patient. And uh, they include medications, dehydration, infection, and some electrolyte abnormalities like hyponatremia. Um, and the focus today, the my focus will be on medications, which are common and uh, potentially modifiable risk factors for delirium. And there are a lot, a number of studies which uh, assess the associations of medicines with uh, delirium. And there are also expert assessments in patients who develop delirium. Uh, for instance, in Germany and in Israel, uh, it has been assessed. It has been found that around 20% of patients were uh, precipitated, of delirium cases were precipitated by delirium. And in Finland, it was found that medications were responsible for uh, around 35% of delirium cases. They are either primary or secondary suspects in, in patients. So the question is, how commonly are these medications used in patients with, who have developed delirium prior to developing delirium? So there is a limited uh, information in this, in this regard in Australia and worldwide as well. So what we did was we have explored the literature and we have uh, prepared a list of medicines that, have, that are possibly associated with delirium. And we classified these medicines into uh, medicine into two depending on the magnitude of risk medicines known to be associated with delirium, which have high, high risk, and medicines suspected to be uh, associated delirium. Uh, and we have used three systematic reviews to stratify in this way. So we've, we've used uh, the Department of Veteran Affairs uh, Claims Database, and uh, we included patients 65 years and older who, have, who, who are entitled for uh, and subsidized uh, health services. And we were admitted between 2010 and 2015 within a six-year period, and uh, those which have been diagnosed with delirium, either a primary or secondary diagnosis. So we've got around 23,000 patients, and half of them were women with a median age of uh, 89. 
18% were living in residential aged care facilities at admission, and 75% were admitted for medical reasons. 65% of them were from public hospitals. So when we see the prevalence of use, 40% of paid, uh, medical patients were using at least one medicine in the known to be associated category. One, at least one of the drugs in that group. And 37% for, for in those who were admitted for surgery. So there is, uh, and, and three, at three quarters of patients admitted for medical reasons were taking uh, at least one medicine suspected to be associated with delirium. Yeah, the proportion of patients in, uh, in, in patients for surgical admissions is slightly lower than the medical admissions, which makes sense because they may be less, uh, less uh, sicker than the patients admitted for medical reasons. There is also a high prevalence of concurrent use of these medicines. Uh, the, uh, at least 13% of patients in medical patients were using two or more medicines that may cause delirium. So uh, there is a potential that removing one, one or two of these medicines may potentially prevent the patient from developing delirium. It depends on how the patient is predisposed, but it could have some role. So which medicines are highly utilized? The anxiolytic patient, uh, drugs with anxiolytic, hypnotic or sedative effects were used by 17% of patients. And this group of patients, where they this developed delirium after being admitted to the hospital. So, and this proportion of patients were using medicines prior to hospitalization. So if we, uh, especially for surgical patients, because there is, there is for uh, uh, surgical patients who have planned surgery, there could be some time to act to modify the dose or to uh, change to less risky medications, there could be a chance that uh, we can modify these medications and remove delirium from happening. So in conclusion, we, the use of medicines associated with delirium is very high in Australia, and more, with more than one third of older Australians using at least one medicine known to be associated with delirium, and three quarters uh, using medicines suspected to be associated delirium according to our classification. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, because that very interesting um, data there. Any questions from the floor? I have one question. If no one else, I'm going to be asking questions all day then. <laughs> um, Giza, um, you mentioned that there's a complex interaction between predisposing and precipitating factors in the development of delirium. How do we use this data to better target our patients that need to be, you know, deprescribed off these uh, high-risk medications? Okay, thank you. Yeah, um, the amount of insults or the 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 precipitating factors required to induced delirium depends on how much the patient is predisposed. So in highly predisposed patients, even removing one medication may, may be enough to stop delirium. But in, in less predisposed patients, in less predisposed patients, uh, uh, there, there, we may not see any, any change. 
but in highly predisposed patients, it could be possible to, because the amount of the precipitant required could be very small in that case. And removing that may have some impact. Um, you're giving me an idea. I mean, uh, I'm not aware of any randomized controlled trials where people have said, right, perhaps in a preoperative assessment uh, or some elective admission, seeing them say, you know, four or six weeks out, as to whether, okay, you've got a drug that may cause delirium when you come into hospital, so perhaps we should try to take you off it before you come into hospital. Some of the drugs that those folk were taking, you probably couldn't stop, like if you're getting L-dopa for Parkinson's disease, wouldn't be too keen about stopping that. But others may be more sort of describable. So has anyone done a trial like that? Or, and perhaps should you think about doing a trial like that if no one else has? Yeah, we haven't trialed that one, but uh, uh, once we identified highly utilized medicines, there is, in, in the future, we can target this helps us which medicines to target uh, in, in such uh, delirium prevention in, interventions. Uh, we haven't trialed that yet. From what I understand, those are the medicines that people were taking before they came into hospital. Do you have the capacity to look at what they were started on in hospital? Sorry? Do you have the capacity to look at the medicines that people were started on in hospital? No, no. this database tells us, is a health claims database. We can only access where, uh, when be, before hospitalization, medication use before hospitalization. And this may, may underestimate actually because well, after being admitted in hospital, we may, they may take uh, additional uh, high-risk medicines. So the, the, the prevalence may be higher than reported in this one. Thank you very much, Kazat. Okay, next up we have Dr. Um, Juanita Westbury uh, from Wicking Dementia Centre, University of Tasmania, and her the title of her presentation is Same Old Problem That Substitutes an Altered Practice, Continued Overuse of Psychotropic Medication in Residential Aged Care. There you go, loaded title. But anyway, I think before we start, we need to really acknowledge the high level of mental illness in aged care facilities. 2012, there was a report by the federal government that showed that over half of all residents had clinical signs of depression. We know that about a third of residents have anxiety. We know that over half of residents suffer from sleep disturbance. But overwhelmingly, the number one condition that causes the most behavioural and psychological symptoms is dementia. Officially said to be present in 53% of residents, but we think that the, um, the real incidence is probably between 60 and 80%. And this problem isn't confined, obviously, to Australia, and it's been around for quite a few years. I found this paper from um, 25 years ago, and um, basically they estimated that about 80% of residents have a psychiatric illness. And they actually called and said nursing homes are really the modern mental institutions for the elderly. And really, you have to recognise that how, how many of the staff and what type of staff are working in aged care facilities and do they have appropriate training when you've got 80% of residents who have mental illness. But we have guidelines to um, assist with appropriate care. And for the common mental health conditions of changed behaviour of dementia, anxiety and sleep, just go through this really quickly, is uh, first of all, seek other causes for these symptoms. Um, medical causes, infection, um, untreated pain. Could it be the environment, could it be trigger factors? You need to use non-drug measures first 
provide meaningful activities for residents, um, improve the quality of life, distraction, things like that. Of course, there is a space for the use of antipsychotics, but they should only be used in situations where a behaviour causes significant distress or a risk of harm. And benzodiazepines should be used only short-term intermittently. And when they are used, we have to review these medications, whether they're effective, what sort of adverse effects they may be causing, and we need to review antipsychotics every three months and benzodiazepines every two weeks. And I have to also acknowledge the NPS who helped me with these guidelines. Um, and it's really hard to assess whether those sort of guidelines are being followed because medical recording and note-taking in aged care isn't really detailed in a lot of cases. Some of the evidence we have is really by looking at the use of the overall use of medications in facilities. And Professor Snowden has done a series of research projects in Sydney, in a particular area in central Sydney. Um, he's done a series of four, about, roughly about five years between them. And you can see um, that the very first um, prevalence study he did attracted a lot of media attention. It resulted in a New South Wales uh, task force, ministerial task force. It resulted in a whole section of New South Wales Health really dedicating guidelines and attention on the use of these medications. And you can see it really impacted antipsychotic use for a while, but then use appeared to increase again. It seemed to have a sustained effect on the use of benzodiazepines. There isn't a lot of other research, um, and especially national research, and we were lucky enough to be able to have a very good sample of aged care homes to do a national prevalence study of the use of antipsychotics and benzodiazepines and also antidepressants and other medications. And we did this from two th 2014 to 2015 um, in 139 aged care homes. We had a full sample of 150, but we were able to get full data from this study. We had six um, homes in the ACT that were included, and you can see the distribution. We had 11,368 residents worth of medication. So what did we find? Um, well, in terms of antipsychotic use, we found a lower use, 22% of residents were taking antipsychotics daily, but we did find that over 10% were listed or charted for a PRN antipsychotic. In terms of benzodiazepines, we found 22% also were using these daily, which is higher than what was found in New South Wales, but we had a high incidence using them on a PRN basis, or actually being prescribed them on a PRN basis. In, in our first wave of the project, um, we asked the nursing staff to actually indicate how much of the PRN medication was used, and we found that it wasn't really used very often. About 10% was used quite regularly. About 30% was used um, you know, a couple of times a month, but the majority was there sort of just in case, we found. Um, that yellow bar here really indicates the number of people who were prescribed um, antipsychotics and or benzodiazepines either on a regular or a PRN basis. So really 54% of residents, um, so more than half of residents, were actually chartered for one of these medications. We're able to look at antidepressant use, and the use has increased over time. 41% of residents were taking antidepressants. We had a very high use of metazepine, especially low-dose 15 milligrams strength. So we were trying to sort of think why has antipsychotic use has gone down and sort of get a little more evidence around it. 
And during um, 2010 to 2013, there was a lot of uh, media attention and research released around the world about the mortality associated with antipsychotics. Um, the Australian government, um, and I, the NPS did a couple of releases, and I know the Australian government actually did some prescribing restrictions. They um, reduced the number of repeats for quetiapine. Uh, they actually um, didn't allow quetiapine 25 milligram repeats. And also in um, the middle of 2015, so just at the end of our, of our data collection, they also um, made tougher restrictions on the use of uh, risperidone. So they, they uh, basically recommended that it only be used to people with Alzheimer's disease and also that it be only be used for 12 weeks. And I've just got, um, we wanted to sort of see whether there was a difference in states. And you can see that that antipsychotic use between states here was actually very consistent. And when we did statistical testing, there was no significant difference between any of the states' use of antipsychotics. But we did find significant differences in the benzodiazepine use. So South Australia actually had a significantly higher use of benzodiazepines. And I was quite interested to hear the benzodiazepine use in the, from the last two presenters. But what we also found was there was a significantly lower use of benzodiazepines in the ACT and New South Wales, perhaps as an effect of the increased guideline and awareness from New South Wales researchers and New South Wales Health. Um, I wanted to sort of also see whether this was um, happening across the rest of Australia, not only in aged care, but in terms of general prescribing. So I had a quick look at um, PBS data. Now this isn't, of course, um, specific to aged care. It's general prescribing. Um, I didn't include um, REPAT prescribing in this. That accounts for about 5 to 6% of all use. Um, and and you can see here that I've got the three main low-dose antipsychotics that we know we used in aged care. And you can see that, um, that quetiapine use has gone down. And that roughly, well, actually pretty clearly sort of like coincides with the no-repeat rule for quetiapine. And then you can also see that when risperidone restrictions were introduced, there was a slight decrease in risperidone. Um, but not really profound. And what's happening now that we need, <laughs> need to watch this is that use appears to be slightly going up again, perhaps because of reduced attention on this issue. I also wanted to have a look at um, comparing benzodiazepine use alongside antipsychotic use. And so these two lower sort of lines, uh, the top one is the use of um, oxazepine, 15 milligrams, and you can see that the use has gone up over time. As and low-dose antipsychotics has gone down, which is this red line. The use of um, oxazepam, 15 milligrams, has gone up. Um, this is a diazepam, 2 milligrams, which is still used. By, uh, that was about, account of about 20% of our benzodiazepine use in our aged care homes. And this is the orange line where I combined these two lines together. And you can see that basically as antipsychotic use has gone down, benzodiazepine <coughs> use has gone up. So in summary, what we did find that... Um, Low-dose antipsychotic use appears to have gone down consistently across Australia and in our aged care sample. Yet it appears that anzolytic benzodiazepine use, particularly low-dose oxazepam, appears to have increased. Hypnotic benzodiazepine prescribing has also reduced, but it seems to have been substituted in part by the use of 15 milligrams metazepine. Also, we've got PRN antipsychotic and benzodiazepine prescribing rates are high, higher than were reported in Sydney in any case. 
Um, and we, we were sort of a tribute. A lot of the time, we've got PRNs prescribed in people who are taking regular doses of these medications, so it's sort of used as a top-up, perhaps, when um, medical practitioners aren't available. And also, as a just-in-case, if there's a behavioural exacerbation. We do know that most of those, um, those that prescribing appears not to be used. There's a wide variation in state prescribing patterns, especially of benzodiazepine use, and there's a wide variation between homes. And just as a final slide, I wanted to show you, this is our full sample of 150 homes across Australia. You can see there is, we've got a, a group of homes that use hardly any benzodiazepines, and you've got a group that use quite a lot. And this is the median line, and I, I just, um, I was asked to comment on quality indicators, and I just thought, if I had a go, um, what I'd do is sort of really use a bar line figure of about 20, if it's over 25% of use in an aged care home, really need urgent attention in that case. Okay, and that's the end of my presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Juanita, for that interesting project. Any questions from the floor? We are a little bit short on time, so I might... Yeah, Ian? So I need the obvious question then. Have you gone back, done some focus groups with those nursing homes that are at the end of the spectrum and tried to find out why is it that you use so little and you use so much? I, I think that'd be I, very interesting. I don't even think a lot of nursing homes know how much they use because a lot of the time we audited it. Um, I, I did a separate project called Reduce, which I'm not talking about. Some of you may have heard about it. But what we did was at the beginning of that project we audited use and homes were often very surprised and, you know, a couple of homes didn't even want to be involved because they said they didn't have a problem. And when we actually audited use, you know, they were 30% or so. And they, they said, but we did work on this last year. So it's... I, and in the, in the US, definitely, there's mandatory national reporting so that homes know their, their rates of use and at least they know they've got a problem. Um, but in answer to your question too, we had um, a qualitative researcher interview. We, we actually... This is a bit surreptitiously. We had our very high prescribers and low prescribers and responders, and we interviewed both groups. But, but again, there was a lack of perception about how much they used. And often homes that didn't respond very much thought that they did really well, and it was converse as well. Thank you very much, Vanita. Thank you. <laughs> okay, last but certainly not least, we have um, Dr. Muna um, Sawan from the University of Sydney uh, talking to us about uh, the implementation of the GMEDS, or Goal-Directed Medication Review Electronic Decision Support System. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm here to present our randomised uh, clinical controlled trial called Implementation of the Goal-Directed Medication Review Electronic Decision Support System, also known as GMEDS, in Home Medicines Review. Um, the trial is funded by the Cognitive Decline Partnership Centre, and it's also registered in the Australian and New Zealand Clinical Trials Registry. And the principal investigator is um, Professor Sarah Hilmer. So this picture speaks for itself. We all know what we're dealing with. People with dementia are often prescribed more medications than people without dementia, and they're often inappropriately prescribed. In addition, um, older people are prescribed um, anticholinergic and sedative medications quite often, and they're often associated with high-risk adverse effects, raising, uh, ranging from uh, dry mouth, falls, excess morbidity, um, and mortality. 
So to address this problem, we have developed the Goal-Directed Medication Review Electronic Decision Support System, bit of a mouthful, which is a clinical decision support system which um, contains validated tools and guides that can be used for all older people, including specific tools for people with dementia. It has the goals of care for the patient. It's got the revised patient attitudes towards deprescribing questionnaire, and both tools are designed to facilitate patient engagement and person-centered management, um, medication management. In addition, it has the drug burden, uh, drug burden index calculator, which um, calculates the drug burden in order to um, optimize uh, cognitive and functional outcomes in patients. So the Home Medicines Review is an opportunity to identify inappropriate or unnecessary medications for deprescribing in older adults. It's a collaborative process between the GP and the pharmacist, and it provides guidance to the GP on the deprescribing process. So this leads me to the overall aim, which is to test whether the addition of GMEDs to HMR reduces anticholinergic and sedative medication use in patients with and without dementia, measured by the DBI, and to measure the impact of the medication changes on clini clinical and functional outcomes. So to achieve this aim, we're a, conducting a randomised clinical uh, trial, which is two-arm parallel group, um, and it includes... Um, accredited pharmacists who meet the selection criteria to be um, randomised into the intervention arm or the control arm. So the control arm involves um, the accredited pharmacists conducting a usual HMR service, and part of the service is they provide a report of prescribing recommendations to the GP. And the intervention arm is the, um, con the pharmacist conducts the HMR service in addition to using the GMED software, um, which also produces a report for the patient and the patient's referring GP, and you just need to emphasize the GMEDS report is a, a, a customized patient-centered report and includes the patient's goals of care, it's got um, their responses to the attitudes towards prescribing questionnaire, and it's got the DBI score. So um, the creative pharmacist will also collect data um, at a patient's baseline, which is the first HMR visit, and at three months follow-up. So um, a total of 130, just on to preliminary baseline characteristics, we have a total of 131 patient participants who've met the inclusion criteria and have enrolled in the study. Um, the sample of patients includes 69 females and 62 males, and the median age is 78 years. Most participants were taking five or more medications, and the maximum number of medications was 19. And the median DBI score for patients was 0.5, and the highest DBI uh, score recorded was 4.3. And um, interestingly, over 70% of patients had a DBI score of more than zero. And now patients were affected by four to seven diseases, and the majority were reported to be adherent to their medications. And 49 out of the 131 participants who had scored five on the Minicog test, while only seven were reported to have a recognized diagnosis of dementia. And a third of residents reported to have had a fall in the last 12 months. Now, of the 131 patient participants, 51 were allocated into the, rand, uh, into the intervention group, and as part of the intervention, participants were asked about their goals of care. And most respondents' goals of care were to optimise functional independence and quality of life. 
And also, part of the intervention, patients completed the um, patient's attitudes towards de-prescribing questionnaire, and of the 51 uh, participants, 49 um, had completed the questionnaire, and the, the care and dementia version of the PATD had been completed by the remaining participants. And on my right, um, you have the factors that are assessed by the questionnaire, and the beginning with the global question, which captures the willingness to have a medication described. 90% um, of participants were willing to stop one or more of their medications, provided that the doctor said it would be possible. And now the appropriateness captures patients' belief in the appropriateness of, appropriateness of withdrawal, and almost half of respondents said that they would like to try stopping one or more of their medications to see how they felt without it, and they would like the doctor to reduce the dose of one or more of their medicines as well. Now, the burden questions reflected respondents' perceived burden of their medications, and over 50% of participants felt that they were taking a large number of medications and that they spent a lot of money on their medicines as well. While on the other hand, 71% um, of participants thought that taking medicines every day was not inconvenient. And on to concerns about stopping, over 65% of uh, participants reported that they'd be reluctant to stop a medication they'd been taking for a very long time. And when asked if the doctor recommended stopping a medicine, they would feel you know, the doctor was giving up on them. Uh, only 12% of patients reported they would, and almost 70% of respondents reported that they would not get stressed should changes be made to their medicines. And on to involvement question, which covers the patient's willingness and wantingness to be involved in medication management. 88% um, of participants would like to be involved in making decisions about their medicines with their doctors, and um, the same with uh, wanting to know as much as possible about their medicines. So to conclude, uh, GMEDS is a new person-centred clinical decision support tool for primary care practice that may reduce use of anticholinergic and sedative medications, improve clinical outcomes in older adults, and encourage patient participation to achieve medication management aligned with their goals and preferences. Thank you. very much, Verna. Do we have any questions from the floor? Thanks for that really interesting presentation. <clears throat> I was looking at your adherence level, and you said that was a score of four with an average between three and four. Mm -hmm. So can you just clarify how you actually assessed adherence? Um, it's using a tool called the Mariski tool, and it's a, question, uh, it's a scale um, that asks the residents four questions. Mm -hmm. um, one of the questions is, do they often forget taking medications mm -hmm. um, and just assessing uh, factors of um, that you know influence adherence? Okay. So being a self-reported tool, did you look at any other measures of adherence? Because the literature does say, and I've shown in my own work, that patients do say what they want to hear, what you yeah. think they want to hear. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I de that's definitely taken into consideration. It is a self-report yeah. tool. Yeah. Um, and while we didn't actually, you know, undertake a qualitative assessment to understand mm -hmm. their relationship with, you know, being adherent to medications, um, that's something that we can just look at, um, you know, in, in the next time. Okay. But it's definitely, yeah, I mean, we are weary that um, it is self-reported at the end. Okay, thank you. Well, um, that brings us to the conclusion of our presentations today. We've had a fantastic lineup of speakers with very interesting research, and we wish them all the best going forward. Hopefully, in, in 2020, we'll hear an update on your on your projects. Uh, please join me in congratulating the speakers and thanking them for their time.
Um, and, <laughs> and uh, enjoy lunch. <laughs>